Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Beautiful day. You have a few announcements as we get started. We do have uh, a men's brekkie coming up on 11 November. That's a Saturday, 9 a.m. So you guys will have to, I guess it'll be hunger that, that drives you to get up that early. Um, to come out and to hang out for fellowship at Chris Roden's house. So RSVP with him. Uh, we do have also a screening of the Jesus Revolution movie, 18 November. It's a Saturday at 7 p.m. So it's free. Come out and check that out. Uh, it's kind of the Jesus people movement from Greg Laurie's perspective, a pastor in Riverside, California. Also, we do have a church camp coming up next year and deposits are due December uh, so three December, and that helps us with giving the final numbers to the Coleroy Center. So everyone's invited. There's spots for everyone. So look into that. There's some more information and signups out in the foyer. So when you do put your deposits in, we ask that you would put your last name, your surname, with uh, I think it's a hundred dollars per person. So looking forward to that. That takes place in April next year. So. Is it 15 to 18 April, 2024? So planning ahead. Hopefully that gives you plenty of time to fix, put that in your diaries and be there. It's during school holidays so kids can come. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your light that shines on us all. That Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And in him is no darkness at all. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you and for your wisdom that you have to share with us. And we pray that you would cause us to humble our hearts before you now, to be hungry and thirsty for what you have to say, and that would receive it and rejoice in you and all the good that you've done and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ecclesiastes 11 is where we start. I remember a handful of times as a kid going to the Union Carpenters picnic. The highlight for me was watching all the fellas do this massive tug of war. And uh, it's like, all right, we're doing the tug of war. And it'd be like, you know, hundreds of people pulling on this rope. And it was good times. They had activities for kids as well, like the three-legged race and the, the egg toss. You guys ever do an egg toss? So you just have two, you have to have pairs and you throw the egg one way and then you take a step back and you throw the egg the other way. And the team that's the furthest apart you, and you don't break your egg, you win. And uh, you, you can't play that game by yourself. You have to have a partner. And in picking a partner, you're looking for someone who is maybe as competitive as you, who wants to win, someone who can throw and catch. And um, I always pick my brother because I knew he was, we, we played plenty together. Uh, but Jesus, he picked his uh, partners in a different way. His partners in eternal life and labor. He called people to himself who rejected him, who hated him, who criticized him. In the chapter where he's pronouncing woe on these cities where people heard him preach, they refused to repent. He said to those same people and us, he said, take my yoke upon you. So to those who rejected him, to those who hated them, he gave them, he offered them a place by his side, people dead in sins, people who were his enemies. He said, you enemy, you dead in sin, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me that I am meek and lowly in heart. He could have warned Jesus. If he was an ox could have shouldered the load himself, 
but the father saw fit that the yoke placed upon Christ would have room for someone else. And that's you. And that's me. And he says, come to me. If you're laboring and you're weary in me, you'll find rest for your souls. So he extends a spot by his side, not just to do a job, but to be with him forever in his presence. (coughs) This life with new birth, and it is certainly an abundant life. Ecclesiastes 11 is where we'll be. We have a life that's full of labor and weariness, but in Jesus, we do find life and rest for our souls. And it doesn't matter if you've rejected Jesus up till this very day. He calls you personally. He says, come to me. It's in him we find life. And you know, countless times God has used people to lead others to salvation. God called Noah to build an ark so that the people of the earth who would listen to his message and those animals would be spared. He called Moses, Deborah, David, and others to wage war upon enemies that were stronger and mightier than the Israelites. But God led them and helped them win the battle. God used Paul to bring Christ to the Gentiles and the gospel of, of Christ. And so God does the saving, but he uses people to help him deliver and bring that salvation because God brought, he used someone to bring you to his knowledge of him. God used someone to be here today And so it's like, God wants to use you to bring others to the knowledge of Jesus as well, to find rest and labor by his side. So Ecclesiastes 11, verse one, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it again. You will find it after many days, give a serving to seven and also to eight for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. These last couple chapters have been a barrage of wisdom from Solomon in practical living and it's, it's talking about life under the sun. And so he's like, you only have a short time on earth. Your life on earth is brief. So make the most of it. If you could just sum it up, that's one way to do it. Uh, so use the time, use the opportunity, use the resources you have for his glory. And the main theme that we see repeated throughout this chapter is that there's so much we don't know. There's a lot we don't understand. But our lack of knowledge should not prevent us from exercising ourselves to seize opportunities to do God's work today, to speak forth his truth, to be obedient to him. Just because we don't know how it will turn out doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We shouldn't work towards those ends. So he says, send your bread upon the waters. The word can also mean uh, grain that's making bread that you'd make bread out of. And you would send your bread or grain excess for trade. As Solomon did, he would put it on a ship. He would send it far away. And when, and if it returned, it would be loaded with exotic goods or payment for that grain. So um, a modern day equivalent to this guidance would be diversify your investments in trade. Don't just trade it in one way, not just locally, but internationally Um, have multiple uh, streams of income. This principle though, should not be limited to business or Uh, in your portfolios, but apply to liberality in giving, be generous with what God has given you. Jesus told a parable about an unjust servant. He was told to settle accounts because he was going to be sacked. He had been a lazy servant. And so the servant's like, "Uh Oh, I need to start preparing for my future. 
And so what he did is he called all the creditors to him and he gave them sweet deals. He gave them huge discounts on what they owed his master so he could find favor in their sight that when he was looking for a job soon and he was being, um, he would already have an in with them because he saved them a lot of money and they would hire him. Now let's turn to the words of Jesus in Luke 6 verse 37. That uh, servant was, he was very self-serving, but we're not called to be self-serving, to be looking out for ourselves, to be glorifying God, to be, but to be thinking about ourselves and our standing before God, like we sung today, that our conscience, a reminder of forgiveness that we need, that we need to deal with our sin. We must confess it. We must forsake it. And uh, we do so for our benefit as well as God's glory. So Luke 6, 37, Jesus said, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. The context of Jesus teaching is we ought to do unto others as we would have them do to us, even if they are our enemies. Many are like the unjust steward who are just looking to benefit themselves. But God's children are known by love for their enemies, people who hate them, people who have offended and injured them even. And so our actions are to reflect the goodness of God and his grace. We have freely received. We have freely been forgiven when we ask. And so we're to freely forgive others rather than demanding an eye for an eye. So if we judge or condemn others harshly, that is the measure of judgment God will use on us. We're setting the standard in one sense for the judgment we will receive and forgiving others paves the way for us to be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. The idea is that you will always receive more than what you give. We do not give so we can receive more. That would be selfish motives, right? But the fact is when we are willing to give freely as God gives, we will never be the loser. We're always receiving from God because he will see to it that uh, his word is fulfilled. You ever felt ripped off because you bought like cereal or a, a, a bag of, of chips and it was just, there was nothing in there. It had settled over time and you're like, I got ripped off. I was robbed. But those who give will never be without you're without the thing that you gave. But he says you will receive compressed, compacted and spilling over more than you can contain from him. It may not be the same thing you gave and that's good because the things we often give are perishable. The thing God gives us, those are imperishable. They are perfect. They are eternal. They will last beyond this world. God's gifts are not consumables that you just do. Well, I'm sorry. That's gone. That was good while it lasted. No, his blessings are permanent and forever. Ecclesiastes 11 verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. There is a lot of, a lot of things in this world that are outside our control. Like the weather. God created the earth with a water cycle. You have evaporation, condensation, 
in the clouds and then precipitation, rain or snow falling to the earth. And many times God's purpose in creating clouds and their function have overruled our plans. Like uh, God, God's going to provide for the planet. Uh, But there's been times we've been rained out of work or that game was canceled or that, that outdoor wedding didn't quite turn out as intended because it just bucketed rain. And so there are things that God allows. We cannot change. Like when a tree falls, there was a tree that stood for a long time and you were shocked to see it fall. You're not going to stand it up again. A tree that stood tall for decades or centuries, it could fall in heavy winds. And we've seen the tree that's leaning. That's just stubborn and it keeps standing. And the tree that we thought would never fall, well, it's on the ground and there's no reversing it. And so God, he does have power over all. He knows all things, but we ought to avoid the, the trap of fatalism. The idea that our efforts are pointless and without value, that they're of little impact because we could plant this tree. We could water this tree and tend this tree only to have it knocked down. And so what's the point? Why should we put in that effort when God can bring it to nothing in a moment? Another error is to avoid doing what's right because there's a potential hindrance. There's an obstacle that could stand in our way of accomplishing what we want. If we're going to wait around for the guarantee of success without effort, personal risk or cost, we will never do what God created us to do. We will never fulfill our purpose. If we're waiting for the perfect opportunity that we think is perfect, right? We're just looking like if, if they just say something about God, then I'll know it's time to talk about God. Or if someone comes up and, t- and, and says like, why are you joyful in this trial? I'm going to wait for that to happen until I talk about then, then that's my cue to talk about Jesus. If we're waiting for that to happen, it may never happen. So why not be sowing the truth of God's word and praising him now? Because it will make great fruit. It says there in verse four, he who observes the wind will not. sow; he who regards the clouds will not reap. One farmer observes, it is the season for sowing and they sow. Someone else is like, I paid a lot for that seed and the wind is blowing a gale today. I don't want to cast that seed and have it blow into my neighbor's field. I don't want to have it blow into the river and it be lost forever. I won't be getting the benefit. So I'm not sowing today. I guess I get to sleep in. We've talked about making hay while the sun shines to avoid bundling wet hay because it's actually a fire hazard. But how silly it would be if you have a ripe crop, a crop that you've plowed, you've planted, you've watered. God has brought the increase. And because there's some clouds on the day, you're like, oh, I could get wet out there today. I won't bother harvesting that. I'll wait till it's drier. And then day after day of overcast weather, then it really rains and it hails and you lose everything. Like it would be a shame to come to that point and allow a few clouds, not even rain, but the chance of rain to keep you from the harvest that God has given the whole crop wasted. Let the clouds move us to hard labor now to get that harvest in quickly rather than seeing as a reason to procrastinate. I read an excellent sermon by Spurgeon It's titled sowing in the wind, reaping under clouds. And it had this poem in it. I thought it was good. Besides all water. sow the highway furrows stock, drop it where thorns and thistles grow, scatter it on the rock. 
Isn't it wonderful how liberal God has been with his word to give it to us, to spread it everywhere on the good ground and the hard ground and the stony ground and on the footpath. He, he sows it everywhere. It doesn't cost him anything to, to sow it. It's going to bear a fruit and we can be guilty like, uh, of that, like that person who's observing the clouds and the wind as dictating how they should live. We can look at someone's face and say, do they look receptive to what I'm going to say? Are they smiling and looking inviting or do I see storm clouds on their brow? And so today is not the day to speak of the good news. Today is not the day to talk about Jesus because I'm not sure how they're going to react. They could react violently. So I'm not going to speak. I was only recently, I, I realized like, you know, those birds that are eating the seed off the footpath in the parable of the sower, that seed's not wasted. Birds eat seed. They fly to a faraway place. They, they use the toilet, right? And the seed comes out and it is planted somewhere else on a different continent. It's very possible this could happen. So it's like the devil cannot foil God's word from going out and being fruitful. He will cause it to grow. Don't be so concerned that it grows where you can see it because how often do you plant a seed? And it's like, Oh, there it is. It's growing. It takes time and we need to leave the timing to the Lord. We're not wasting God's good word to share it with everyone. Even if their mouth is blustering like a hot breeze or their face is like storm clouds. If we don't throw out the net, how will we bring in a catch? Like the farmer, we should be content to sow, content to reap in season, knowing it's God who's given the increase. We've spoken the word of God. That's what he calls us to do. God created clouds to rain and he's created us to spread his word, to speak the truth in love, continue sowing in faith. Even if you've given his word and you've never reaped anything to your knowledge, you've never seen any change. Keep on sowing because his word will not return void as we see. We'll read a passage later and it's good for us to come to this sowing, not with a proud or arrogance, but with a heart of humility. Psalm 126 verse six, it says he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. This isn't a person waiting to, to Bible batch the spiritually blind, but one who's watering the word with his own tears because of the barrenness of his own field. He has sown seed and it has not reaped. He has not reaped. He has not seen it grow. He knows the seed is good, but he's planting it and nothing is happening. And so he sees his own barrenness. He sees his own barrenness in his life, but he keeps continually sowing because he knows doubtless he will reap. The harvest will come. It may not be him harvesting it, but the harvest will come. God will see to it. Should our lives be more fruitful if we neglect or refuse to sow? Don't let your barrenness deter you from sowing as God has told us. Because our life is evidence of God's power to save souls and to transform us into his image. And we should not use the conditions, the potential of rain or wind, not to freely sow what he's given us 
to share his love and truth with others. Isaiah 55 verse 10, it says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Whether you see it sprout or bear fruit, that's irrelevant. Fact is God's word will fulfill its purpose. The accomplish, it will accomplish what God pleases. And if we believe that God's word will accomplish what he pleases, let's be sowing it liberally. If we've been dishonest, if we've been lazy, been a bit stingy with the word, we've been looking to the clouds or the wind deterring us from speaking forth the truth in boldness, or we're looking for signs or feelings or for some miraculous thing that's going to prompt me to share. Let's instead look to his word. Let's look to his spirit to guide us. And we have an example in Jesus who spoke to these people who hated him, who rejected him. And he continued to tell them the truth and the way of salvation. Clouds, they give rain. And God's people, they are to sow his truth everywhere without discrimination, liberally, freely. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything in the morning. sow your seed and in the evening do not withhold your hand for you do not know which will prosper either this or that or whether both alike will be good. In verse two, Solomon said, we don't know what evil is coming. These verses give us additional things that we don't know. We don't know the way of the wind, where it's coming from, where it's going. This was me on my first airplane trip. I was sitting there flying from LAX to Spain. And I had this, this wind blowing right on my face the entire flight. And I didn't know that you could just reach up and turn it a little bit and get the wind off your face. I just thought like, this is how a plane is. I just got to get another blanket and try to survive. You look outside, there's no air handlers or, or fans, no supply or return ducts. You can't say, oh yeah, the air is coming out of these vents. Like you, you don't know where it's coming from outside. Now we do know a lot of the science behind wind that Solomon didn't know. Like wind is generated by the rotation of the earth, by differences in atmospheric pressure as the earth heats and cools. We know the Coriolis effect where uh, storms swirl clockwise in the Southern hemisphere and anti-clockwise in the Northern hemisphere because of the rotation. But despite our knowledge of wind, we can't perfectly predict it. We don't know where it's going to come from. We also don't know how the bones grow in the baby of a woman with child. It's, it's a miracle. After five weeks, there is a beating heart in that baby. And I'll spare trying to wade into embryology because you pretty much need a doctorate to understand a sentence. I was going to read a couple of them to you just because it was funny how I think I'm speaking English and I think I'm pronouncing the words right, but I have no idea what it's talking about. And the most advanced so I, I scanned a few articles and one of the ones I said like third or fourth sentence is like, this article is not sufficient to detail everything we need to talk about. So I'm like, Whoa, if this isn't saying everything that could be said, 
I'm very ignorant about this. And, and after scanning all those, those uh, articles, I can say, I don't know how it happens. I don't know how it works. I don't know if anyone could know exactly what's happening that by seven weeks, the, um, so I read that baby skeleton develops as somites at five weeks, that uh, by seven weeks, the outline of the whole skeleton is finished. By week eight, those somites disappear and your joints form. By 10 weeks, you have bones beginning to harden and you have to be 20 years old until your skeleton is fully done. So if you say you're a growing boy or girl and you're 19, you're telling the truth. You're still growing. You're still developing until you're 20. And then, you're, then your skeleton is, it's complete. So yeah, pretty crazy. So Solomon says, you don't know these things. You don't know about what's going to happen. You don't know about the wind. You don't know about how babies form in the womb. You do not know the works of God who makes everything. You have no idea what God is doing or planning. You don't know how he'll do it, but just know he will. God knows, he knows the way of the wind. He knows the ways babies develop. And what we don't know should not keep us from trusting him and obeying him now. And if we can't understand the common things that we see, how could we possibly know or predict what God is going to do? We can be in a situation because we have God's word that we can be a little bit dangerous. We know enough to be dangerous because we can lean on our own understanding and forget that God's the one who actually knows what's happening and what he's planning and what he's purposing. In the trial, Job had a lot of questions. He knew God, he trusted God, but he was suffering. He was in pain and he had a lot of questions to ask God. But as soon as God revealed himself, what did Job do? He listened, he stopped talking. He listened and he put his hand on his mouth and said, I've said too much. You're the God who knows these things. Job 42 verses one through three in the new living translation. It says, then Job replied to the Lord. I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about things far too wonderful for me. So God's like, who is asking these questions in ignorance? Job's like, it's me. I don't even know what I'm talking about. You, you know, you do everything. He not only knows it, but he does it. So rather than prying into what God has not revealed or seeking an explanation or a reason or trying to get a guarantee before we obey, we're to do our part in trusting God and obeying what he has said to us and made clear. We can follow that. Verse six says in the morning, sow your seed in the evening, do not withhold your hand for you do not know which will prosper either, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So in the morning, sow your seed, make the labor God's given you a priority in your life. Do it first thing and be doing it throughout the day. He employs a merism here. He uses morning and evening to talk about the whole day, day and night, every hour of the day that we'd be putting our hand to the plow. I think we can be conditioned by the gospel a little bit to think that everything needs to be instant because we know that we have assurance of salvation when we're, we can be born again right now. When we trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven for sins right now. We can know we're going to heaven right now by trust in him. But there are things that take time and we should not expect it to be immediate. We can leave that in the Lord's hands. 
sowing seed in a field that can bring bread in a matter of months, a discussion with your spouse or your child or coworker about God's word over time can produce fruit jobs that seem a waste of time. I'm like, this isn't a career. What am I doing here? Well, God can use that to change you and make you a difference right there and make a difference in other people's lives. You have no idea what God is doing right now. The things you see as your greatest failures, God can redeem for his glorious purposes. A couple of examples. When I was working in a trade in San Diego, I had uh, four large storage tanks at the WD headquarters that I had to um, insulate. And uh, I was looking into the history of WD-40, and it's a San Diego company. It began as the rocket chemical company with three employees. They were trying to find an anti-rust and degreasing formula for the local aerospace industry. Now, I have this here that I was given. So you guys know what it looks like, right? Now, this is kind of cool because it's a radio. <laughs> yeah, you can listen to your tunes and just think that you have WD-40. So anyway, this was given to me by uh, the, the brewmaster of WD-40, where they make it for all the world. But WD-40, that's water displacement formula 40. There were 39 times that it didn't work. And the funny thing is, is they don't really use it for that purpose anymore because it ended up being used for so many other things, not for aerospace industry, because it was specifically for the Atlas ICBM missile. People, they were spraying it to try to keep the parts from corroding. And then people started taking the product home and they go, well, what if we put this in an aerosol can? So they put it in an aerosol can. And by nine, so that was in uh, 1953, it began. By 1960, the company doubled in size and they named the company WD-40 Company because it was their only product. So they were working in this industry thinking that they were gonna protect this Atlas, but then the Atlas stopped being used. The Minutemen and other missiles were used. In 1965, WD-40 kept going. Now they have 300 employees. It's estimated that one million cans are sold a week, that there is a can of WD-40 in four of five houses in the U.S., 187 countries now. The original founders had no idea. They were just trying to build something. They were trying to make a product that would protect the Atlas missile. But now there's over 2,000 uses. It's across the world. Who knows what God will do? I mean, there's a lot more than three people here. There were three people working on a magic formula. We have the truth. We have the Holy Spirit. May God cause his word through us to make such an impact that goes beyond us. Right? His word that, that will endure beyond us. Turn in your Bibles for an example in Matthew 16, 21 of how we don't understand God's plans. We don't understand what he's doing. Jesus and his disciples, it says in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. 
Jesus began to tell his disciples of God's plans. The reason why he came to this earth to die, to rise from the dead. And Peter said, this shall not happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus for doing, planning to do exactly what God's purpose for him coming to the earth. It didn't fit Peter's plans. It didn't fit his idea of what the Messiah should be. That Jesus had come to provide eternal life for lost sinners, for salvation and forgiveness. That's why Jesus came and Peter would have prevented him from doing the very thing that he came to do. That's he had no idea. And that's very much like us. Jesus said that if a a grain of wheat remains alone, it, it stays there. But if it dies, it can produce much fruit when it's buried in the ground and it causes life. And so Jesus went to the cross joyfully because he knew what Peter, what Satan, what the angels did not and could not know. That is death would lead to resurrection and eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. So our part is to trust him and be obedient to him today. If Jesus was willing to die and bear much fruit, we ought to die to self and speak forth his word. And we ought to be more excited over the goodness of God than over some product that stops squeaks and loses rusted parts. I mean, we have a savior. We have a God who loves us, who has changed us, who has a future in our lives. It doesn't just, Oh, God works for me. He's made my life better. No, we have a life now that we never had before because now we have Christ. I am him and I am his and he is mine. So what a savior that he would give us a message that will outlive us on this earth to spread his word. Ecclesiastes 11 verse seven. Truly the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. We live in a world that's under the curse of sin. God by his grace causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And Jesus is the light of the world. He draws us to himself. We have this sure hope of eternal life in his presence forever. And it is pleasant to wake up and see the sun shining and basking in the light that God brings. We emerged from the darkness of the womb and now we bask in the light of the sun. And we're reminded though, and he Solomon's very quick to do this, to bring us back to the fact that our days are short, that we are heading to the grave, that we will not be here forever. And this echoes his sentiment that our lives are short and we ought to make the most of the life God's given us today. Uh, In one Peter two, nine and 10, it says, but you are a chosen generation, a Royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We've been chosen to praise God. We've been chosen to glorify him, to speak of the good things he's done. A proclamation of praise to God. And Peter goes on to say that because he has, we are his chosen people. We ought to abstain from sinful lusts, live with conduct that brings honor to God. And for all the light in the world, there is also darkness. Know that God's light, it can pierce the darkness. 
I have family in Alaska. It's amazing. I was looking into, because uh, they don't experience days like we do here. Uh, there's a northernmost town in Alaska called Barrow. It experiences 67 straight days of darkness in winter and 80 straight days of midnight sun in the summer. The sun never sets. And, but though the light or darkness may last long and you're thinking, when will the sun shine again? I'm going crazy in the dark or man, it's hard to sleep when it's always light, but no Solomon saying the darkness is not going to last. The light is not going to last. All that's coming is vanity. Your life on earth it's going to end. It's only a matter of time till autumn gives way to winter. We are to sow the good seed of God's word now because the time's coming when we'll be silent in the grave. And it would be a shame to reach the end of our days and to have regrets. So today is the day to make a change for good to say, you know what? I'm going to seize that opportunity to speak for Jesus. I'm going to praise him for what he's done for me. Ecclesiastes 11 verse nine, rejoice. O young man in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. We live knowing that our lives will come to an end. Young and old do well to remember that God is the righteous judge before whom we will have to give an account of our days here. And a lot of young people, they can't wait to be older. Uh, they'll say I'm eight and a half because they just don't want to say eight. They're well on their way to nine. So it's like, I'm, I will be 14 in three months. Oh, so you're 13. Okay. And then we start rounding up when you get older, like I'll be 50 in a couple of years anyway, or something like that. But you can't wait to get older. You can't wait to drive. You, you want to be done with school. You want to move out or travel the world. Rejoice in your youth. Enjoy it while it lasts because it's not going to last forever. You, youth is vanity. It will fade away. And you have no idea of all that you take for granted in your youth until you are out of your youth. Right? And I see a lot of people, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Seize the chance now to seek God and obey him rather than going your own way until you are lost and miserable and even blame God for the bad consequences of your choices because evil brings sorrow. And as long as we are going our own way and not seeking the Lord, we will, we will drift from him and he by his grace will pursue us. So evil, there is evil in this world but those who fear God, we have fullness of joy, promises of peace. And as youth, as a young person, there's great potential to live for God. So don't waste your life on what you cannot keep and what will not last. Seek the Lord. And we do this. We all do well, younger or older, to follow the example of Christ, to follow him, to uh, be like those who faithfully obeyed him. Turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4 verse 12. close here. 1 Timothy 4, 12. You know that in your youth, I, I think there's various opinions about how old Timothy was when he received these words from Paul, somewhere in his thirties, likely. 1 Timothy 4, 12. 
Paul wrote to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So Timothy, really all believers are called to follow Christ's example in how we say the things we say, how we live in love, faith, and purity. There's a lot of things vying for our attention, but there's no substitute to give attention to reading God's word, to knowing why you believe what you do. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So desire, ask for, and use the spiritual gifts he gives you. And verse 16, really, it's a good point of application for us in doing our part. It says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Pay attention to your life. See that it lines up with the truth of scripture and the truth you proclaim. Our godly witness, the good news spoken and lived out by us are the means God has chosen to save others. And so this is by doing this, you will save others by your testimony, by your praising God. He will use you to impact others forever. Like most God used Moses to lead his people out of Egypt or he used Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. God desires to use you to lead people to Jesus, lead them to Christ so they can experience that abundant life that's found in him. So rather than pinning our hopes and dreams on someone responding in a way we want to our efforts, let's look to Jesus. Take his yoke upon us. Psalm 31, 24 says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord, you know, God does not disappoint. There may seem no end to your labor under the sun, but in Jesus, we find rest and he will make his word fruitful. So let's be faithful to sow it everywhere. Let's pray. Thank you, father, for your word and your wisdom. Forgive us father. When we have looked to the wind or the clouds and we have been deterred from doing what you've called us to do when we would have, we should have been spurned on to do it. And I thank you that you give us opportunities to change, to be changed, that you empower us, Lord, to do your work through the Holy Spirit who fills us. And we praise you, Lord, that you have chosen us weak, flawed vessels through whom your glory shines so that people can come to the knowledge of Jesus and live forever. So they can experience that abundant life and love that you have for everyone that you demonstrated on the cross when Jesus died for our sins. Thank you for the power of God in raising him from the dead and for giving us new life by faith in him. And I pray we wouldn't be leaning on our own understanding, but we would acknowledge you that you know everything that you do everything and that we don't know what you're doing. We don't know what you're planning. We don't know how you're going to use these trials or situations in our lives, but father, we trust you will. Thank you for giving us such a purpose, Lord, to praise you, to honor and glorify you. Even as the clouds drop the rain, 
Lord, may we sow the good seed of your word. May it find good ground in our hearts that it might be fruitful and bring you glory now and forever in Jesus name. Amen.